Well, good morning. And welcome good morning to, to you. Yeah, we're back on Next Page Podcast, as usual. <laughs> so it's we good love to see you. You too, honey. And we made it through the hurricane. You know, coming from Charleston, I'm like, these people in LA are running around with like chickens with their heads cut off. And I'm like, y'all, we went through Hugo. Y'all need to calm down. I like, honestly didn't even know what happened until you told me. So that's a, how much of a, a blip. Tr- it was literally like, a, it was like a little rain. I'm like, y'all yeah. need to stop. <laughs> well, Everyone needs to calm down. People in California do freak out about any rain. So, oh, yeah. The, you know, what like, do you mean I can't wear flip flops? Like, <laughs> there's something coming from the sky. I don't know what it is. <laughs> So what have you been up to? Well, you know, it's that time of year. School is starting literally tomorrow. And I am so excited. Not for me, but for my daughter. And yeah. What's she I mean, in? Seven years old. How, how, she's what going to first you? grade. She's going to first, first grade. grade. Yeah. So. It's a big deal. Yes. It's a big deal. And she is very excited. And. Take all the pictures. I will, of course. And then, you know, went and saw the Barbie movie. That was, you know, I felt I like. I have seen it yet. Oh my gosh. It's so good. You have to I heard it's see it. so good. I it's heard so Margot Robbie funny. is fabulous. Oh my God, it's so funny. I did not and expect Ryan, it to be that funny. Yes, Ryan yeah, Gosling is said hilarious. very poignant. They said yes. it's poignant. Yes. Like you don't think the Barbie movie is going to be poignant, but it's like it it, oh, it it's, slaps. It's on point. It does slap. That is a good way of putting it. It definitely slaps. It's a great movie. Everybody should go check it out. You heard it here first. You if you heard it here first, first, then I don't know what you've been doing, but... <laughs> I've just been in LA, just kind of chilling. I just got back from the ship. Yeah, you saw your mom. Yeah, mom was on the ship that she, you know, Mama Jackie made a big appearance on the ship and she became a little celebrity because I introduced her in the show. And it was just a really, we had a really, really great visit. It was fun. It's great to see when your mom gets to see you perform. It's really, it was fun. I'm so jealous. It was fun. You'll get out there one day. You'll you'll come on a cruise. Gotta see the magic. I know, the magic show. All right. So we have two incredible, incredible guests on today. Oh, do we? They are amazing. That it was it was a phenomenal interview that I know this audience is going to latch on to. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that they're like another Twilight, not Twilight Zone, but they're they're basically us, just in two ladies in out in Colorado. You know, they're they're doing the same kind of work, but also just the positivity and the lessons, and and I think everybody's just going to really enjoy this conversation. So yeah, they're on a crusade of healing, and it's just it's really incredible to be a part of their basically the beginning of their journey in the podcast yeah. world. This is great. For sure. It was a, we'll definitely have them back. And, but I think this one as a whole is, it's going to resonate with a lot of people. I'm really excited. This episode slaps. This episode slaps. (laughs) Okay. Would you go ahead and tell our audience about them? Yes. So our guests today are Amanda McCoy Flanagan and Ginny Oliva-Smith. And Amanda is a co-founder of a 501c3 nonprofit organization, Castle Rock Clubhouse, a recovery clubhouse that serves as meeting space for various 12-step programs. And she is passionate about sobriety, meditation, and spirituality. Ginny is a wife and mom of two beautiful kids, co-host of their podcast and founder and owner of the Flippin' Phoenix Furniture Rehab Company. Both of them together host the podcast Soul Rising All In on Love, Loss, and Connection. It's a bi-weekly podcast where you will hear candid, honest, vulnerable conversations sure to pull at your heartstrings and enlighten your soul. Conversations revolve around our basic fundamental human instinct for connection. Ginny and Amanda explore how emotions such as pain, fear, loss, and grief, as well as joy, excitement, happiness, and love work to either create connection or hinder it personally in relationships and collectively out in the world. 
So without further ado, I give you Amanda and Jenny. Welcome to Next Page. Good morning, guys. Thanks so much for having us. We are so happy to be here with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This is awesome. Well, we're going to jump right in here. So listen, clearly both of you ladies have a lot of background in many things that we discuss on our podcast, but however, we can only cover so much today. So first, let's start with where y'all are from and where you grew up and how the two of you met. They always say, if you want to know that a New Yorker is from New York, just talk to them for like five seconds and they'll tell you right away. I'm from New York. I'm from New York. I moved to, very proud of that. I moved to Colorado in 2015. So I was born and raised in South Shore of Long Island and I went to school in upstate New York. I worked in Manhattan. I lived in Brooklyn. So I was all over, all over New York state for the first 35 years of my life. Then I moved out here to Colorado. We are, Ginny and I both live in a town called Castle Rock. It's 30 miles south of Denver. So it's between people kind of sometimes know Colorado Springs and Denver. Boulder's about an hour north of us. And i Love it here. I love New York. You know, don't get me wrong. I go back once a year. We go to the beach, maybe hit the city, you know, but it was one of the best choices I ever made was coming out here. It's beautiful. It's awesome. I'm literally right? obsessed with your accent. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it never gets old. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like it sounds like unintelligent, you know, no, I don't know. Like, wow. like or lazy, oh. like we're too lazy to say our ERs. We really can't say water. Like oh, it just well, takes too much effort. Water. Just, <laughs> just, just say like, spend, like water. Yeah, just go spend a few days in South Carolina and you'll feel way more intelligent. I think it's a unique thing to be in Colorado and have that New Yorker accent. It's nice. It is. It is. And Jenny, yeah. where are you from? I was born in El Paso, Texas. I was raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That is where I'm from. I've lived in a lot of places though. I lived actually where you are there in Los Angeles in my early 20s, but spent the better part of my growing up in New Mexico. And moved here to Colorado in 2018 with my husband and two kiddos. And same thing. There's something really amazing about this place. I have so much love for New Mexico, but this was definitely a better, I don't know, just kind of all the way around well-rounded opportunities, education, all the things for our kids. And it's an amazing place. There's something about it. People, I don't know, having it be a part of the culture that people are outside all the time, doing things. You know what I mean? Like all four seasons, snow, it doesn't matter, whatever's happening. There's something pretty amazing about that. I'm convinced it's got to be the mountains too. I don't know, but people seem to be in a better spot. Like, And I've lived in LA too. So I've had the opportunity to compare. How did the two of you meet? Well, we're both in a 12-step uh, recovery program. We're both sober. Yeah. Out of- I think that you. was out the first of- spot probably, right? Yeah. I don't know if we met first in a meeting or if we met at church, because we also go to the same church. We go to an Episcopal church, although we say we're spiritual, not religious. because yeah, it's like diet Catholic. It's like- Yeah, same. they call it Catholic uh, light. I'm, a, I'm like, Episcopalian, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Catholic yeah. light. They're Catholic like, light. oh, you're yeah. alcoholic. It's cool. Come on in. They're like, it's fine. Yeah, they're <laughs> very open-minded. The priest there, you know, he's married with kids, which I think yeah. is pretty normal. And- We both grew up Catholic, by the way. Both yeah, we grew up oh, wow. Catholic. Yeah. And we, I moved here and the Roman Catholic Church just wasn't doing it for me. It no, they're weird. very traditional. And, you know, I'm always like when those guys are like, oh, you shouldn't be a homosexual. I'm like, sir, you're in a dress. So true. Yeah. And we could take that conversation probably a lot further. But I know. Exactly. But yeah, I love our church because of the priests. It's sermons. It's, it's the stuff And he's he from Albuquerque. He's from Albuquerque, which doesn't hurt. Oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. nice. It's just light and love and understanding and welcoming and all that. It's beautiful. 
That's awesome. So you guys, you know, have all met at one of the two places, either church or step program, but you also both have pretty impressive day jobs. Uh, Amanda, you're the founder of a nonprofit recovery clubhouse, correct? Mm -hmm. And Jenny is owner of the Flippin' Phoenix Furniture Rehab Company, which sounds super cool. But outside of those you two started Soul Rising podcast, podcast about love, loss, and connection, where you will hear candid, honest, vulnerable conversations, sure to pull at your heartstrings and enlighten your soul, which I feel like, you know, is kind of on brand with what we're trying to do too. But so what was kind of the inspiration for you two to start this podcast and how has it impacted the two of you? You want to take that one, Jenny? Sure. Well, Amanda and I have always found ways to connect, you know, on different things. I think like many people in the world during COVID, we both were really taken back by even in our own circumstances and everything around us, how divided. (laughs) It was no secret how divided to the point where we were talking about having family members who literally don't speak anymore and all the things. And she and I would sit and talk about how much we were being impacted by the fact of all this separation, the political, the emotionally just charged separation that was happening enough to the point that we're like, why is this happening? Where's this coming from? How do we help this situation? Because when you get to the point where family members can't even speak, you're like, this is insane. Like the world we're living in right now. And everyone was, of course, like fight or flight, terrified. Like, am I going to die of this thing? We lost family members, like legitimately. So just a whole lot. And we would have these conversations. And one day we were at Vitality Bowls talking about it. And we were just like, we should, you know, I had had it in the back of my head about doing a podcast. I messed around one night and like did a little recording. One of the times we were stuck in the house and I had talked to Amanda about that. She was in the process of writing her book and it kind of just all came together. She reached out again at one point and was like, Hey, if you're serious about the podcasting thing, like I would love to podcast, you know? And it's like, all right, well, let's do this. So She had had this amazing accomplishment of completing that book and been in an emotional place too, kind of excavating. And it just kind of came together, you know, the both of us having the desire to do that and really just wanting to know what can we do as our part, because we have all these things going on with division. What can we do as two just human beings to try to start bridging these gaps? Because it's not going to happen by, hey, I'm going to convince you you're wrong and I'm right. And let's talk about it because that's we're so far past that. Right. And we realized it would start with us. And if we could start talking about these things with the, you know, amongst each other, we knew that there's other people out there too, searching to do the same thing. So kind of starting with that place and trying to not just heal ourselves, but help other people heal too, because we feel like that's the answer to a lot of the outer chaos and struggle happening in the world. So that's how Soul Rising came to be. I have all the goosebumps because that's literally how ours began as well. It was the <laughs> pandemic. Yeah, it was the pandemic. And we seriously, we sat down, Todd came in to Charleston. We were he was escaping the- We hadn't seen each other in years. Years, years, years. And we spent like eight hours just talking. And a main thing was like, I was just like, I think that people are more like traumatized by this pandemic than anybody will really kind of openly talk about. And then all the things that I think you will get to this, but you know, a lot of things y'all touch on in your podcast is a lot of the same things that, you know, we were realizing like as far as divorce and loss and things that were going on that we had no idea each other were going through, you know, Mostly because, you know, we also were separated by being across the country. But, you know, during that time, everybody was isolated. So it was like not only was everybody going through this collective trauma of this 
shutdown and, you know, the fear and the division and all of that, but also they're going through human experiences and you don't have anybody like your normal support system or your normal kind of interaction with other people to to help you through that. So I I think it's pretty incredible that that we found each other, all four of us. Like totally not an accident. Well, and what do y'all sort of hope to accomplish with the podcast? And what do you sort of hope that your what is the audience's biggest takeaway? So I think we're hoping to inspire people to jump in to their emotions, jump into their pain, jump into and the good ones too, the joy, and think about how all of these things, mainly running from this stuff, is disconnecting you from yourself and from others. And then how healing it can work to, like Judy said, bridge bridge you back to yourself. And then that's the first part, right? And then you can connect with with other people. So like Judy touched on a little bit, you know, we believe that the chaos inside is creating the chaos in the world. And that it starts with us, right? I mean, like, this isn't like a novel idea. I mean, like, we've been talking about this stuff. These are like spiritual principles we've been talking about forever. And we believe that now's the time, that the time has arrived where people are ready and eager, wanting to do this work, that they're feeling this pull, that they know there's something going on within their spirits. A lot of people are more awake now than they've ever been. And I think people need guidance. So we're hoping to guide people to the place where they feel comfortable enough and safe enough through Ginny and I doing it. Like we don't, our show is not, you got to do this, you should do this. This is we're healing with you. We talk very openly and honestly about our own shortcomings, our own mistakes, our own flaws, our own achievements are all, you know, both sides. We play both sides of like every episode. Like this last one we just did, what's going to come out on Friday is called to forgive or not to forgive. That is the question. So what we talk about, we talk about, you know, the benefits of, of forgiving and, and how maybe not forgiving can empower people, right? We're taking these like hardened and fast sort of ideas and concepts that we've had as a society for probably centuries and that have been compounded and changed in different ways. But we believe that we're ready as a society to shift. Like shit, that's what COVID was. It was just a wake up call. Things need to change. We need to shift. So we believe that the shift that's going on out there with ideology and everything changing has to happen in here. So that's sort of what I think we're hoping to inspire people to do, to really get real with themselves, get honest, realize a little bit of pain is not going to kill you. I mean, we've both been through a lot of pain with nothing to anesthetize ourselves because we've both been sober quite a while. And we know that if we can do that and if we can heal and continue, we're still healing. You know, the healing is never over. If we can keep doing that, then so can you. Wow. That's motivation. Yeah. Once again, something Todd brings up often is kind of like this feeling of this shift, this collective shift from, you know, I think part the pandemic, but maybe that was just even a part of something even bigger that was happening before that, that that this is just the time that I think a lot of people are, are looking inside as opposed to, and I think they kind of had to for a little bit, you know, everybody kind of had to be like, I'm alone with myself or I'm alone with this person that I didn't really know that well before I thought I did, but now like we're in a bubble together. So, you know, that's just amazing. And I I couldn't agree more that I think that this is definitely the time. And I think that you'll have a a really amazing podcast. Everybody should go and listen to it. We'll have links and everything to the podcast, but love y'all's take on kind of different concepts. And, and that's kind of, you know, for the sake of time and cohesiveness, we kind of decided that we would drill down into 
you know, kind of one main topic that has, I think, a lot of branches, but it's something that has affected all four of us. And, and that's loss and the grief that ensued from it. And could maybe both of you briefly describe for us your personal experiences with loss, probably in particular the loss of loved ones and how they impacted you the most? Yeah, you know, I think it's been an incredible time of that. We've lost several family members. We had a few really close ones in 2020 that had been actually due to like issues with addiction and people that you would have never guessed are people that would like die from this, you know, under the age of 15, two beautiful girls, both like sisters to me died 60 days apart, alcoholism, and we don't know what else, but these aren't, and and again, not people like, you know, under a bridge somewhere. These were like people, respiratory therapists and esthetician, both beautiful people. And I know we weren't the only ones with that. We also just recently, my husband's best friend just passed in June from cancer, 49 years old, and just, you know, quick and one of the, just one more reminder, I think of how fragile, right? Like we're here every single day that we're here is We don't know. We don't know how much time we have. I think for me, that level of grief, I also lost a really good friend in April. I mean, we've had a lot. We've had it so much. I think a lot of it had compounded a little bit, you know, even having so many, like two or three people quickly pass, you know, during COVID times when a lot of people lost folks. I think these last few people we've lost almost uh, gave me the opportunity to grieve them because we didn't get to have a funeral for one of these people. Like it was almost like she was here and then she wasn't. It was really an odd, surreal thing. I think that now I've just had this intense amount of time to reflect on my own mortality because these, all these people were very young and close to me, two of them being, you know, suffering from alcoholism that I had done as well. And having this different perspective of, and then one of our friends who genetic form of cancer out of nowhere, right. Just asking myself the questions, like, what are you doing with the days you've been so graciously given? You know, the fact that you didn't die drinking or the fact you are healthy today and you don't have some form of cancer that you couldn't control. What are you doing with this time? Because we were watching our really good friend just fight with everything in him in this intense warrior kind of way. Just one more day. He did this fight and thinking, what am I doing with my days? I don't have to fight for. So for me, the most recent times we've gone through this loss and this grief have been transformative. They've been very eye-opening. A lot of it's been very in my face, asking myself the questions what do I want to leave this life with too? You know, what do I want to leave here? And how do I want to, at the end of it, would I be at peace today if it's like, okay, well, this is, I've got two more months, you know, and what I have been glad with, would I be at peace with the way that I spent my time? And as this was happening here a few months ago, I, my answer would have been no. I was working in a corporate job that I've been doing forever, taxing myself. Like, you know, my family and loved ones got the leftovers at the end of having a great job and making great money. But for me, it's been transformative and it's not all been comfortable at all, but I'm so grateful for that very raw pain because it's been something that's really caused me to question and take inventory on my time and what I'm It's moved you to a calling you probably didn't know that was there. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, Amanda, you have said that grief has sort of changed your perspective on the value of things. And can you just expand a little bit on that? Sure. Yeah. So... I'll start back. When I was eight months sober, I had a boyfriend who died and he just didn't wake up. And it was on Easter Sunday, which I thought was kind of ironic. And that was my first real experience with grief. I mean, my grandmother died when I was 12, my grandfather when I was 17, but they were both sick. I was kind of young. I was a mess. I was a teenager. I was drinking, you know, I was doing all crazy things. I wasn't really present, but I was actually finally present eight months sober when Mike, 
you know, didn't wake up one day and I felt it and I, you know, spoke to people in the program about it and stuff like that, but I didn't go to therapy. Like I didn't really do the deep healing. I had met who was now my husband shortly after and I just kept going. I just kept going. I just, I didn't really stop long enough to heal that. And then we moved to Colorado and within three years, five close family members died. First, my aunt, my mom's first cousin, and then my other aunt, which both of my mom's sisters, and then my aunt, one of those aunts who passed away, her daughter, my closest cousin, Kim, and then four months later, my brother. So I didn't heal or look at really any of that until Jeremy died. And I think was my brother. And I think when Jeremy died, I was forced. It wasn't really a choice. Like grief to me just cracks people wide open. And it cracked me wide open. And I had this experience that I believe was a spiritual awakening kind of put upon me by my brother to wake me up to shift this generational family dysfunction that had been going on in my lineage for probably centuries. And the dysfunction was this message of people leave you, people are going to hurt you. You must protect your heart and always love a little less. I was literally told that. It's always better for you to love a little less in relationships. That compounded by various traumas throughout my life, a couple of sexual traumas when I was a kid, and, and then my father leaving, my father having an affair with my mom's best friend, and then him leaving. My, then my, my mother had breast cancer at that time. Like Just a whole bunch of stuff had happened that I didn't ever stop to heal or look at that compounded this message. And when Jeremy died, the message became true. And I wound up pushing my husband away for fear. I didn't know. Unconsciously, I did this for, out of fear that he was next to go. And I didn't ever want to feel that all-consuming pain. So we started marriage counseling and all this kind of stuff. And I unraveled this story. She helped me see that this is the story that I've been telling myself my entire life. And it never allowed me to be all in with anybody, really, not just romantic partners, but with with anybody. So, you know, to speak to the question of, of value, right? Like I started like valuing like my relationship with my husband and valuing myself first. You know, I had done all this work. I was sober for 12 years when Jeremy died, right? I had done all this self-reflection. I'd been in and out of therapy. I'd been working the steps. I'd been doing everything I was supposed to do. And I thought that I was like, good. And then, you know, you just don't know what you don't know until you know it. You know, once one layer is peeled, more is revealed. So I guess at 12 years sober, I was ready for this healing that was coming my way. That was, again, like I say, kind of forced upon me to look at because, you know, I was facing divorce. I told my husband, I don't think I love you. I don't think I ever loved you. And he was like, uh, you know, Jeremy just died five months ago. Do you think maybe your grief is playing a part? And I had enough experience with this work that I said, you know what, there's usually something going on under the surface. I'm willing to take a peek, at least for my kid's sake, you know, I'll try it. I'll try it, you know? And my therapist was like, you know, I was really adamant when I went in there. I was like, you're not going to make change my mind. You're not going to make me say, I know how I feel, you know? And she was like, listen, Amanda, she goes, it's not my job to make you stay together. She goes, whether you stay together or not is none of my business. She goes, I'm here to help you heal and you become whole and to help him become whole, he went and did his own therapy. And then once you're both whole, or I believe as close to whole as you could get, because I feel like we're always growing, then you come together as like a third whole if you choose to. So she said, just give it like a year. So I did. Yeah, you know, I gave it like a year and things shifted and things changed. And I started to really believe that I was worthy of love and that I was worthy of giving love and that my love was valuable. And that I really have a place and a purpose and a meaning in this world. And that I have really important work to do here. And it all 
begins and ends with love. So that was like my journey to becoming the highest version of myself that I'm obviously continuing journeying to. So the greatest value was found in self-love and in self-worth and saying, you know what? Yeah, people are going to leave. People are going to die. I am going to get hurt, but I'm going to be okay because I have me. I have myself. I learned to never self-abandon. That was the message. That was the whole healing that went on here. I've learned to be comfortable enough in all of my feelings to never fear giving all of myself to somebody else. I have never heard that before. Never self-abandon. I have never. That is very, very profound. Never self-abandon. I mean, because at the end of the day, you are enough and we just have to learn that we are enough. We say it all the time in acting class. My coach always says, you know, don't do anything. You are enough. And as soon as somebody learns that they are enough, they're free to be present. They're free to be in the moment. And your story, both of you, you've been through so much grief and so much loss. I have to ask, I'm going a little off script here, Laura, but I have to ask with all of that grief, I mean, five people in such a short amount of time, does that challenge your sobriety? those experiences? Not really. So people have this idea of sobriety that it's a constant like white knuckling, that like we wake up every day and that it's a struggle. So what happens when you go through the 12 steps in particular, when you if you choose that path of recovery, is the obsession to drink. That's what addiction is. It's an obsession of the mind coupled with a compulsion, a physical compulsion. So once you start to take the drink because of the obsession of the mind, that's where alcoholism stems from is the mind, then it kicks on the allergy. So at some point going through your steps, that obsession is removed. It's just removed. It's a miracle. That's the miracle of the 12 steps and a higher power and your higher self. And all I'm that. sorry. Can you break? Yeah. I feel like you need to reiterate down? that because it's new to us. Can you break that down for me like I'm a three-year-old? Because I don't understand how that need or because I've always thought, like you said, addiction is something that, especially alcoholism, it's a disease and that it's, it's a craving. You crave the drug. You crave the, the escapism. So can you just sort of break that down for me that it just, it just goes away? I need to understand this. Technically, the craving, the physical craving cannot be set off until you ingest a substance. The first we say in recovery, I'm trying not to say the name of the program out of respect for the traditions. We're not really supposed to be doing that. It's the first drink that gets you drunk. Yeah. One drink is too many. A thousand is never enough. That's another one. Exactly. In your system, that's when you have the physical reaction of the craving. It's like this. Your brain immediately is like, oh, we got the dopamine. Let's go. Like, but if- And we metabolize sugar differently too. They've done studies with alcoholics. That alcohol is sugar ultimately. So we metabolize differently and it sets off a craving for more. But like I said, the obsession starts in the brain, in the head. So it's this mental obsession that I have to have this drink either to escape a feeling right? Or to like, it's not about the alcohol. The alcohol is a symptom of the disease. The disease is something going on within us. We call it a spiritual malady. That's what we call it. We don't know how to relate properly. A lot of us to ourselves, the outside world. We have a lot of trauma. We have a lot of pain. We have a lot of unresolved issues. I would bet I'd love to do a study someday. I'm also, I have a social work degree. I would love to do a study someday on how many people have been sexually abused. Oh yeah. In recovery. All kinds of trauma, tons of trauma. Any kind of trauma, but I happen to hear about a lot of sexual abuse. So it's an escape. It's trying to, but we do drink in good times and bad, right? Like it's like we drink at the weddings, we drink at the funeral. So it's not necessarily that we drink, we drink because we're alcoholic and our brain is telling us that we just want to change how we feel, no matter how it is. I'm uncomfortable in my skin, no matter what. 
whether it's good or it's bad. I'm looking to escape how I feel, put on this facade, this persona, the social lubricant, like they call it, and 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 feel comfortable. Right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> social lubricant. You like that? One? So, and it makes everything better. I'm prettier. I'm funnier. I'm smarter. Everybody likes me, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So that's where it stems from. But technically the allergy can't, like Ginny said, cannot be kicked off until you ingest alcohol. So the alcohol isn't the problem. A lot of people don't know that. And I mean, the thing a lot of people also don't know, along with the sexual abuse thing, I can't tell you how many addicts, alcoholics I know that are ADHD or dyslexic. Anxiety, depression, anxiety, bipolar. Yeah, bipolar. And a lot of it is because of the fact they've also shown this too. People who are alcoholic wired, we out the gate. And before you ever ingest anything, we make less dopamine. Because a lot of us have ADHD, which you make less dopamine. So our brain's already out the gate. You know, you're coming into the world already making about... 40% less than someone who's not wired addict or alcoholic. So when your brain has, or your body gets, whatever it is, if it's sex, if it's gambling, if it's alcohol, if it's meth, whatever it is, that your brain finally creates or stimulates that normal amount of dopamine, your body's like, oh, there it is. I like, like this. Feel, yeah. Like that's Let's do this again. Feel. So it does become this physical thing, but like through working, as Amanda was saying, like through 12 step type programs, you're learning how to also adjust because of that, because we make less dopamine, we also feel more. We're also more empathetic. We're also more creative. We're also more, <gasps> the world is like crushing me because that's just naturally even how we feel. So the 12 steps help you to not just not put the thing in your body, but to be in the world, being that kind of person, being that empathic person, being that person walking around with trauma and still be able to live and be in the world without having to numb it out. That's where she's saying the obsession goes away when you realize yeah. The 12 steps are really a journey to self-love and self-worth. I was going to say, it's almost like an antidote to the self-abandonment. Like, as I've always heard, like, I love that term because you always hear like self-sabotage. And, and that is such a weird concept to me because like, even though I've looked up the definition a million times, you, that you can see self-sabotage happening in real time with people, but you're still like, but why? It clearly has something to do with this self-abandonment of feeling like you don't deserve anything that you're- And where does that stem from? You know, like trauma. Trauma and emotional abandonment as a child. So there's another 12-step program. I'm going to blow your minds right now. I'm going to say the name of it because I believe it's that important. It's called Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. So you don't have to have an alcoholic or drug addict parent in your family, but the isms are part of the whole dysfunctional piece. So there's plenty of people walking around out there with this disease, right? Like Jenny said, the shopping, the gambling, the addiction to chaos, like whatever. We have all these addictions and they're not manifesting as substance abuse, but they're still driving people and they're forcing these types of behavior. So emotional abandonment is when your parents technically or caretakers, whoever raised you, is not emotionally well and does not know how to meet your emotional needs when you're a child. And this stuff can happen on different levels, right? Like when your parent is either really like an addict or alcoholic or really sick with this, you know, it's severe and then it turns to trauma. 
But this emotional abandonment can also happen on much less levels. Like it's kind of natural sometimes, like being like I use an example in my book, like being dropped off for preschool, right? Or being left in your crib and you're like, mommy, mommy, you know, whatever, like crying and, and nobody's coming or preschool, mommy's walking away and you have to stay. You feel abandoned. It's just a natural, it sounds like this real big, bad, scary thing and this bad word, but like it's kind of natural in the child rearing or growing up process that this is going to happen. Like I said, when it becomes more severe, that's when it takes a toll later in life when you start to become traumatized and then you're trying. And then, so by feeling this emotional abandonment as a child, you internalize that and you start abandoning yourself because you feel I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I'm not getting enough attention, right? What does everybody want? Love and attention, love and attention. That's it. That's all anybody wants in this world, especially a child. Child needs that. So when a child is not getting that, they kind of turn in on themselves and they abandon themselves because the message is, I don't deserve it. Like you just said, Laura, the message is, I'm not worthy of receiving the love and the attention. And then it turns inward. So a lot of people in that other program are also in other 12 steps. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's important because I've read a lot of things as far as the ACE scores, like adverse childhood experiences, how that increases your likelihood of, of substance abuse or, you know, suicidal ideation. But, and one of those is just being a child of an alcoholic. Like you don't have to have been, you know, been an alcoholic, just having that in your life. But I think it's important what you said about, of just there being dysfunction, like the dysfunction as a whole can can cause that. I assume it has to be kind of on a more repeated basis, not like, you know, are dropped off at daycare that one time. I mean, I think- it, Yes, it has to be consistent. Yeah, It has yeah. to be like over and over and met with hostility as well. So like if you're crying, you're upset with something, if you're constantly being met with hostility or being shut down or not being acknowledged at all, being dismissed, being minimized, you're right, over and over and over, then yes, that's going to leave, take, leave a mark. And, you know, my crazy journey was what happened with all this generational dysfunctional stuff is that I chose a partner who I could not get my needs filled and I could not meet his either. That was what we found out in the work was that we both were suffering from this stuff. My husband's also sober. So I'd say probably 99% of alcoholics have this in common. I realized that I was manifesting that. I was recreating that emotional abandonment in my life. And that's why I thought I didn't love you. I don't love you because after my brother died, I needed emotional intimacy, but I didn't know how to give it. I didn't know how to get it. And I needed it so badly. So I just thought this isn't the guy for me. I can't ever get that from him. Meanwhile, it wasn't him. It was something inside me that needed to be healed from my childhood emotional abandonment wounds needed to be healed. So that kind of comes like full circle with the impact of grief and how it just cracked me wide open. And I had this whole crazy experience and now how it's healing Ginny always talks about seven generations before us, seven generations after us. All of us in this room right now, the four of us and other people out there doing this work, I'm sure people listening, we're doing massive soul mission work that we were put here to do. This is it. This is the stuff. This is the hard stuff. Yeah. Well, that was very mind-blowing. So thank you. I know that we did a little swerve there. What do you like to do? Um, yeah, I mean, that's how the, the conversation, <laughs> the good conversations happen. But, it, you know, I did like that, you know, we kind of came full circle in this idea that, you know, we all kind of have these ideas of how things are supposed to be, how you're supposed to handle grief, how other people are supposed to handle grief. So have you all found that there are any kind of particular myths or misconceptions about grief that that you would personally like to kind of challenge like kind of how, you know, some people say or do things with good intentions, but it's not necessarily not 
helpful or supportive? Like, is there anything that y'all have kind of come across that went dealing with that kind of stuff? Amanda, I know you probably, I think we've talked about this with a, a few different things. We've talked about, and we joke, right, about it a little bit, but it's almost like people think grief is contagious at times. So they're like, they don't even know how to come talk to you or what to say, you know, that it's like, I'll just not say or be around the person at all. Because it's almost, we're so wired to be terrified that it's almost like, oh, I'm going to catch your grief. <laughs> you know, like, I can't be near you. I think there's that part of it. I think that the idea sometimes just being there, you know, with somebody, that it isn't even always that you have to have the exact words, you know, because it's, I think we often think, well, what can I say? What are the words? And sometimes just being there, not having to find the right words and just saying, gosh, I don't even know the words, but I'm just going to be here with you, you know, through this. I think that is something that we don't always realize that just even someone's presence there. And also that there's a time limit, I guess. So we kind of, in our culture too, it's like, oh, okay, well, this was an immediate family member. You've been out of work three days. So, all right, anyway, let's like, yeah, chop, chop. yeah, bereavement's like, over. You've done your bereaving. And that it all ends there, right? And it's, it doesn't. I think that we have to give ourselves a little more grace and freedom and not think that it has to fall in line with, like you were saying, in some type of, there was a handbook on how we're supposed to grieve. It's different for everyone and it comes in waves and having more grace, I think, with ourselves and others that are going through it. The stages. So like people think you have the anger, the bargaining, or the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, and the acceptance, right? Like it's not linear at all. You can be feeling all five of those things in one day. You can be moving, you know, my therapist would talk like that. You could be like here and well, you guys at home can't see me or wherever you are in your car, wherever you are listening, you can't see me, but I'm moving my fingers in between my fingers so that you could be in one stage and you can go back and then you can go back to another one and forward. So it's not linear and to be patient, like Ginny said, and give yourself as much self-compassion. And I just wanted to throw in about, you know, being with somebody and not having to say the right thing. The only thing that I would suggest if you do feel like you need to say something is say, tell me about them say their name, say their, tell me about Jeremy. What are your memories? Ask people because people are afraid, like, oh, I'm going to upset them. I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to upset them. No, no, no. People want to talk about it. And they want people to know that other people are comfortable with them talking about it because it's a very isolating and lonely feeling grief. It's a very lonely. So if you are a friend, you want to be there or a sibling, whatever, and you want to be there for somebody, the best thing to say is just tell me about your loved one. Well, what if you have someone who refuses to acknowledge that they're in the middle of grief? They don't even recognize that that's what's going on or they don't even, and they're clearly like their behavior has changed, their mindfulness has changed, clearly affecting them, but they just don't seem to think that that's a thing for them. You just got to let them be. You just got to let them find their way. You know, you don't have to make it better for them. You don't have to make them feel better or change them or try and show them that, well, if you just do this, then you're going to have some kind of freedom. You know, I'm big on the term emotional freedom. We know what's on the other side of doing that work because it seems like we've all done it here, right? But some people just don't know and they're afraid, they're scared. So just, I would say it's hard, but just honor them for where they're at. Give them a lot of compassion and just say, when you're ready, I'm here. Okay. Wonderful. But what about when they're self-abandoning self -abandoning themselves and hurting their loved ones because they're in so much pain? What do you do when you're like, you're actually in the middle of traumatic grief and that is why you are being an ass or that is why you are drinking more or that is why you are whatever the case may be. Can you sort of expand on that? Like, do you still just let them be? Or, do you, up, or are you like, 
I need a boundary here. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. So yeah, I had a tumultuous relationship with one person in my life for quite a while. And after my brother's death, that relationship got like, there was no hope for it. I say it put a, it put a nail in our coffin after the nail went in his, you know, I asked this person, will you please go get help? Will you go to therapy? Will you, you know, to heal your grief because it's, it's spilling out into our relationship. And she flat out said no. And this is a very important person in my life. And that killed me. I mean, literally, I was like on the floor crying over that one, like just like, ugh. And yeah, I had to step back and I had to say, your behavior is hurting me. It's it's hurting me. And if you're not willing to seek help so that we can have a healthier relationship, I just have to step back. I have to step back for a while, right? I don't need to subject. I can love people from afar, right? Detach with love. That's another saying, right? Like, I don't have to subject myself to somebody else's bad behavior and poor behavior and painful behavior, but I also don't have to leave them completely. I don't have to say, like, I can keep this boundary that's not like, you're out of my life if you don't do this, right? I'm very big on this whole, like, shutting people down, kicking people to the curb because they're in pain, really, is what's going on. So I could say, listen, you could do your thing. You know, do whatever you got to do, take your time. And that's the whole thing. I'll be here when you get better, like, up until then, like, and I love you, know that I love you and I want the best for you, but I just cannot live this way. It's it's too painful for me. That person did eventually come around. She didn't do a lot of therapy and stuff, but she started singing a different tune and things have changed a little bit between us because you got to stick to that boundary. You got to be extremely consistent. That's the secret. Consistency. You don't have to self-abandon in order to try to save them. Right. It's like you're because none of us, and as we just said, grief is so unique to every single person. And we go, you see some crazy things come out of people, come out of ourselves. You see things, look at what happens even in families fighting when somebody passes and they're fighting they're like, well, I wanted grandma's brush. You know, I mean, crazy stuff because we have this loss of all of a sudden. Cause I, and I tell Amanda this, it's the one thing, right? There's no amount of power, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of magic to undo what's happened. Death is that thing instant. They were here and then they're gone. It's literally the shift. And our ego, I think, goes through just such immense, like a car crash because everything believed, everything's shifted and you can't do anything about it. So we, and you're a new person, you're a new person because of it. Yeah. And, but we start to try to have control of other things and we act out and we have like, well, I'm going to say what happens here. Well, I'm going to do this in my life and don't tell me what to do. And because we have this need to feel like we're in control of something because death certainly reminds us we are not. I think that's a very important point that this is like, it is the one thing you cannot control that it will happen. And so, you know, like at all. Yeah. So I guess like y'all have also discussed this in your podcast, but I really love this like kind of concept that loss itself doesn't always have to be like that grief doesn't always have to come from the death of a loved one. It can also be something else big in your life, like, you know, losing a marriage or, getting a devastating medical diagnosis. So how do y'all kind of see those experiences as similar? And do you think you kind of go through the same stages, maybe have the same acting out? Like, how do you think those are similar? And I don't know, like. So I actually just was writing, doing an outline for my book and stuff. And this was one thing that jumped out at me. So I'm very big on grief, not just being defined as loss, losing something or a negative feeling. Even I believe we go through many minute griefs and losses like all day long, just in the form of change. Change 
is the one thing that we're constantly going through that can feel like loss, even if it's a good change. Even if it's good change, like after I moved to Colorado, I had a breakdown like a year in, like, because I was so lost. I had no identity outside of being a New Yorker. I had no idea who I was. So I never doubted moving here. I never thought that it was a wrong decision. So it was a good change, but it still brought me to my knees because there was loss. There was loss of people, places, familiarity, you know, stuff like that. That's why people don't choose very often to move across the country unless there's a job reason. Like we just choked. We just said, hey, Hurricane, Hurricane Sandy hit. My husband was retired. Let's go. So, you know, grief comes in so many different ways or, you know, getting a promotion at work or getting a new job. Your coworkers are changing where you're driving. Your route to work is changing every day. Like we're so habitual as humans. Like we get so comfortable in habit and things that when that habit is broken or that routine is broken, it can shake us up a little bit. And I believe that that's a type of grief and a type of loss that we're not acknowledging. And because it might be painful to look at the feelings around that, even though this is supposed to be a really good thing. I am dying right now. Like gagging is not even the word. Like it's the changes. It's the small changes that continue to, to like spike you back into a sadness because you don't realize that, oh, you know, he always brought me coffee in the morning and now that's not happening anymore. A marriage ends or someone dies or whatever. It's just those little minute things that are the, that break your heart over and over and over. I never, ever, I, sorry, Laura. I'm just no, like, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a great point that it just, you know, it, it, I think that in society, we very much don't acknowledge not even just like those losses of going through something like a divorce or cancer or just even, you know, even if you beat it, like it's almost the same thing as you're a different person at the end of it. And then how that affects like the ripples of the people around you that are used to you being one kind of person too. I mean, that that's almost like a hard part of healing as well. It's like, as you heal people around you that were kind of dependent on you being the person that you were before that, now don't have that person anymore. That's a change for them. So it's just this constant kind of uncomfortableness. And I guess it goes back to this whole idea of like, maybe, you know, now as we're feeling like people are maybe uncomfortable enough to be like, well, what is it? Why does it bother me so much that that person is doing better? Or why does it bother me that, you know, I actually left a marriage that was bad for me, but I'm still unhappy? Yeah, because all of those things are creating ships inside and are causing you to birth a new you to some extent, right? A part well, of you. Old you dying. There is an old you dying. That's the growth, right? Like that's yeah, where the is. growth happens. Yes. That's why you got to do this work. Because if you don't do that, if you don't acknowledge the shift, if you don't acknowledge the change and welcome it and embrace it and love it, and no matter if it's painful or if it's not, whatever, then that growth isn't going to happen. Right. Well, I'm knowing that there is something on the other side of these things, right? Like you're talking about, it's not always a death. Of it's amazing when we have to face the death of an idea or, or an expectation. A fantasy, oh, a wish. A fantasy, yeah. A wish of something like, but I knew that I would be happy if this person just behaved this way and we had this thing. And having to accept that, oh, wait a minute. Like- I have to let go of that. This was the standard. This was the bar. And it was because something in me was empty, not because it was their job to fill it, you know, or the job or the thing, you know what I mean? Or the weight loss or the weight gain, or, you know, you hear people talk about having to get a hysterectomy as a female and what that does. Cause this idea of like, <gasps> we hang on to these ideas that we think we have to 
you know, like a, an expectation, you know, almost like I knew I would be happy if, if this person could have just behaved the way I needed them to, because then I would have felt better not really realizing and having that letting go of, oh, wait a minute, this wasn't about that. This was about something in here, you know, and that in itself, that's like a death of an idea or an expectation. You've both said that grief is one of the only things that is an instant transport to our deepest vulnerabilities, like a light switch. Can y'all sort of expand on that concept for us? I've noticed it in being in it again, that that ego that we have that helps to kind of protect us, right? It's supposed to help serve us and keep us alive. And it does. It keeps us out of trouble. It keeps us, you know, we've had it at times like a lion's chasing you back in the day, right? Now we have it in all these other ways. And it's been one of the things for me, I've watched not just in myself, but in others. Our egos are pretty strong. You know, they are there for us. And we don't even always recognize that's what we're leading with. For some reason, death immediately, it because again, everything all at once is just transformed from one moment to the next. You had somebody who was present in your life and not there anymore, that it shakes the ego to the core. Because again, we can't change it. We can't. I think it brings you right back to humanity. I think it just strips all the other stuff away and you're just a, a raw, naked human. And then what do you do with that? You got a choice, you know, you have to get vulnerable or not. Faced with the idea too, that this is for all of us. All of us are this beautiful, amazing spark. And each one of us, we are here right now. And it's easy to take for granted. Like, I feel pretty good one day to the next. But knowing that none of us has promised to have each other and no one's promised to have us tomorrow. You know, so it's like when death does that instant, like you're like, oh, my gosh, just rocks our ego to the core and our reality. So I feel like an instant just boom, where normally that takes a lot of other events to cause us to just shake free of our ego. In some of this work that we've done, I've always understood it that we need to keep our ego in check, right? Am I wrong in that? No, that's a problem. This is a problem with the world right now. You can hit the nail on the head, Todd. Especially in Los Angeles. I mean, every time I meet somebody, it's like you meet their publicist and their entourage before you meet the, like six months into knowing someone. Then I start to get to know who the person is. It's a very vapid culture out here and everything is led with ego. But it is not exclusive to Los Angeles. Can you expand a little bit for me on the ego and how it plays a role in someone's, I don't know, healing? If you're consumed by your ego, I just don't know how, and and you get shaken to the core, like you said, and everything gets stripped away, and then you're brought back to humanity. Sometimes I see people like the ego goes to protect them in a different way, which can be good or can be toxic. Can you all speak to that at all? Well, ultimately, the ego is serving a purpose. Everything inside of a human being that we're given is there for a reason. Our instincts, like Ginny touched on, right? Running from the lion when you're a caveman, you know, like it's there. That ego keeps you alive. So it's how we use it. It's when we use it properly. So yeah, when it's taken to the extreme of, you know, putting the facade on and wearing the mask and that's all fear is driving the ego, that's when it's detrimental. But when you use it in a way for survival and for self-protection and you kind of circle your wagons and do what you have to do to get through a difficult time, whatever that might be, grief or loss of job, whatever it is, whatever difficulty in your life, that's the proper use of the ego. So ego in and of itself isn't bad. It's how we use it. I didn't know that. I thought ego is bad. And this is just, you know, I'm going off script too, but like I think what people kind of miss when they think they do think of like the ego as this like macho, like the, the mask, the thing that's presented, but really the ego is like, is you, it's just how you then present that to everybody else. And it's almost like this idea of, you know, that you don't let it 
start running the show, I guess. Like it's still there. It's still who you are. It's still going to help you in a time of crisis, whatever that may be. But it also can be a signal to you to be like, oh, wait, no, I'm putting up that mat. I'm doing that thing. I need to go back to, you know, caring about others and extending or, or looking into where that came from. And so I feel like it's almost like a, like a, stop sign or, you know, kind of like a stoplight in a way of like, you know, it's no, this is bad. Like, stop. This is bad. I don't want to interact with this, but it can also be like a green light and you get to know somebody deeply. Like you're not just shedding their ego. They still have an ego. It's just that you have a deeper relationship with them. If that makes any sense to anybody else. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, and something I've also talked about that I love is how that grief, how it can do that to you as a person. It can make you either act out and be ridiculous or bring you closer to yourself and understanding, but that it also can do that with you and other people. It can be an incredibly bonding experience or it can be an incredibly, you know, separating, like Todd kind of said, like toxic situation. So you know, basically, how have y'all seen that happen? And what are your thoughts on how it can bond you and what opportunities come from that and how it can also separate you? Yes, I think that, again, because it's just such an intense, dense thing that happens to us, again, if our ego is not in check, right? And our egos are, they are there to protect us. Like we were talking about them being good. They also can be kind of fragile, right? So they get inflamed easily. And I think that if we don't accept that idea of the, the fear that's there or the idea that, you know, again, that this, this is a permanent situation, that this person is no longer there, that when we don't recognize we're afraid and that we're okay and we acknowledge that we're afraid about that, that that can become, as Amanda said, extremely detrimental to your relationships around you because all of a sudden you're afraid to feel the pain and you start to create this blockage between you and these people around you that you love. Amanda can speak to this. I mean, you're like, I'm not going to feel this pain again, this loss of someone else. So I'm going to go ahead and start making the loss happen now, you know, where you start creating this distance so that you may not have to feel that pain again with this person you love so much. And you hear this. How often do you hear we take things out on the people around us that are the closest that know the most vulnerable versions of ourselves? Because it's the safest house possible. You always take it out in the safest house. We you know? always take it out. On the, and also the people think about that, that the people who know you as being the most vulnerable are now also in this arena with you where you've had one of the most impactful events happen that make you even more vulnerable. Then you're really terrified. It's like doubly terrified because I, all the armor's off, you know? So therefore we can almost create this situation where we start creating the distance between these people that we love more than anyone because we have a generalized fear of the loss of them or the loss, you know, of having to go through that kind of pain again. I mean, I know that from some of my own situations, but I also know it specifically, you know, with Amanda. I know that that's something that's gone on. I think at the same time, I've watched people on the opposite spectrum of that be able to get past problems they've had. Like, I can't tell you, in three or four years, we're actually upwards of like 12 to 13 people between my husband and myself. It's a lot. And I've also seen where there were friends who were fighting over something, for instance, that the second they were there celebrating the life and mourning the loss of this person that had impacted them, it literally disintegrated years of resentment. They were like, here we are together, like this bonding moment of like, well, this person really impacted both of us. Whatever this thing was we were hanging on to, we got to let it go. It puts so much shit in perspective. Yeah, very fast. 
Yeah. And I think also, you know, Laura said something before about, you know, when your healing makes other people uncomfortable, you know, I think that this is, could also translate to grief because if you're healing, especially if you're healing your grief and you're getting vulnerable, right? Most healing happens through vulnerability, right? You cannot really heal without getting vulnerable with yourself. So if the other person is seeing you now healing through this grief, they're, you're showing them a part of them maybe that needs to heal. And then they're uncomfortable with that because you're kind of forcing somebody to be in this new space with you of vulnerability. And they're like, no, like I'm not doing that. Like I'm not going there with you. I can't look at myself. I can't feel that. Right. So we're kind of like mirrors and reflections of each other. And, you know, we're hundred percent brought into partnership with each other, friends, partners, coworkers, bosses, everybody to show us pieces of us that need to heal. That's, that's why, that's why there's more than one human being walking the planet and to help us heal through being mirrors for each other. So I believe that the grief can also serve as a way to either bond and bring you together or separate you based on both parties ability to be vulnerable and to look at themselves right to look at the scary things because man none of us like going in the basement yeah <laughs> yeah basement. i love that term <laughs> going in the basement i hated my basement freddie krueger was down there oh. yeah we were like uh-uh i'm not doing that <laughs> you know and there's a lot of that when sometimes it's almost uncomfortable to be around someone else who might be like amanda said grieving because Ooh, we don't even like to think about having to be in that kind of vulnerable date. It's just uncomfortable. We don't ever want to be uncomfortable as human beings. We just always want to be happy and everything's good. And, you know, and like we talked about before, like we're at a point now in society where we can't just keep going like that because shit's coming off the rails, people, you know? And if we don't do this work. It's so many years of, of parents telling their kids, you know, enough. Don't worry about it. Keep going. Don't look over there. Just keep it pushing. Keep it pushing. Keep it pushing. And now everybody's like, hold on. <laughs> we need everyone a minute. Here. I believe everyone who's here on the earth right now. I've talked about this with Amanda several times, and I'm sure you've heard it if, if you've listened to our show at all, that everybody who's here right now, we're all here tasked with literally healing generations of the same way. Like, I know I have green eyes. I got them from my great grandfather, right? I have those genes at the same time. I also carry the memory of some of the trauma that my ancestors, that's in our genetics, what our ancestors, everybody went through is in our genetics and it travels on. It just keeps going. And I think that all of us, you guys, the four of us here today, people who are paying attention, we're here to finally put a stop and go, wait, hold on. Like you're saying, Todd, no, like we can't just keep going the way things have gone. Like, no, we've got to sort through this and heal it and be better. It's just so people can enjoy their lives more and be more present with their loved ones and be more healed. One thing I think that I think is important for people to understand though, is that they hear this word healing and then they, you know, kind of, I think probably from this generational trauma slash, you know, just experience and, and what they, you know, wanting to avoid the uncomfortableness, it's like they're drawn into this idea of like, well, if I just meditate enough or if I just, you know, like have enough happy memes every day, then I'll be fine without doing the actual hard inward like looking at your inner child, you know, aspect of it. So I guess yeah, you got to be down in the trenches. You got to go in the trenches. You got to be down there. And if you fall on the floor and you cry, that's okay. You're going to get back up. You will get back up. You're not going to die. Facing your pain is not going to kill you. Not facing your pain will. I honestly think God never gives us more than we can handle. I really don't. I mean, it, it might feel like it at the time. And you're like, why are you doing this? Why is the universe doing whatever it is? But I agree with you, Amanda. You will get back up and you have to get back up. There's no other option. Your human spirit wants you to. Your ego 
Your ego yeah. wants yeah. you to. See, it's not always bad. Here we go. <laughs> so, Amanda, you just released a book called Trust Yourself to Be All In, Safe to Go and Let Safe to Love and Let Go, which everyone is available on Amazon. Amanda, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about your book? and what your message or ideology you hope your readers come away with after reading it. Thank you for bringing it up. A lot of the stuff that we were talking about today, that's in there. That's basically my message to the world is what we talked about today is that, you know, doing this hard work, healing this grief, looking at the generational dysfunction, doing this stuff is going to bring you home to your true self that will always have your own back, right? Back to the self-abandoned word. You know, you like I know today, like my book is really a prompt for people to do this stuff so that they can get to a place where I am right now where I feel that no matter what pain comes down the pike, like I said, I might hit the floor for a while, but I'm going to get through it. I'm going to be okay. And it's all exactly the way it's supposed to be because I cannot go through my life asleep or just pretending or just being a shell of a person. I need to be a whole human being feeling all the emotions and all, going through all the experiences or else, what am I doing here? I'm not going to waste this life. I mean, I know I'm probably going to get another one. I've had many past ones, I believe. Oh, but like another podcast. This, don't we? Uh, yeah, well, that's, a, that's another favorite topic. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to waste the time we had, like like Ginny said, and there's a phrase my friend says, and it actually didn't make it into the book because it's actually the title of another book I was researching. It's called Don't Waste the Pain. My book is a prompt for people. And it's not this all big, scary doom and gloom, like, oh my God, this is so painful. No, it's actually, I took great care to bring some levity to stuff. There are some funny parts. It's not all, and it's not all about me. It's an inspirational memoir, but it's very much personal development. There's a huge part of it that's about you, causing you to question things, causing you to think about things. It's all love and compassion, no blame, no, it's all forgiveness. It's all, all of that from cover to cover, because I, I believe that that's the only thing that's going to get us through this hard stuff is having self-compassion and then compassion for others. So yeah, basically what we talked about today, that's, it's about the story of my, my brother dying and then how it affected my marriage and then the whole healing process. And I throw in a lot of different techniques and ways that, that you can heal. Some like technically like, like therapeutic, I mean, I don't get into like the nitty gritty of that, but I tell you what I did. And then I talk about like, it's so it's spiritual. Like I said, I talk about like, I knit this like spiritual tapestry of myself for my life. Like I take a little from here, a little from there. So there's some Buddhist concepts like impermanence, not knowing stuff like that in the book. And then there's some other like Christian or spiritual, like I talk about the St. Francis prayer. Then there's this Hawaiian mantra, it's called Ho'oponopanu. And that's also another one to, to release ancestral baggage and pain and trauma and heal the ancestral stuff. So it kind of dips into all different, it's about you healing. It's about healing your relationships. It's about healing your ancestral trauma. It's a lot. And I think you're going to like it. I really feel very strongly about it. When I was hit with the knowing that I was going to write it, it was just like, go, like go girl. Like I was just so compelled. It was just like a, a mission. I don't know how else to explain. So I hope if you do read it, I, I hope it brings you some healing. Yeah, no, I and I'm also here if you want to talk about it. Well, I think that's incredible. I mean, I think, and just from our conversation today, I mean, obviously this is something that's, you know, near and dear to our hearts that I'm sure it's not original to just us and many people that are listening to our podcast as well as y'all's are searching for those very exact answers. I love the idea of bringing it all from different places because I don't think every, you know, one group has it all right. I think there's, you know, a lot of wisdom out there and our powers combined, we can heal the world. You know, that's the idea. But yeah, we can't like thank y'all enough for coming on today. I mean, this has been absolutely amazing. But before we let you go, we do have a tradition on this show. 
And it's called the question of the day because we talk about a lot of intense stuff. So it's kind of a light little breezy thing, but each of you has to answer just so you know. If you could invent anything in the world, what would it be? I'm actually trying to get rid of things in the world. Oh, okay. All right. Not bad. Well, maybe it's a thing that, that sucks things <laughs> out of the world. It's a yes, it's a thing sucker. This sounds so crazy, but I've thought about this even since I was young. If there was a way, and this is just for my own crazy self, because of the dreams that I have, I have insanely intense, very vivid dreams, but I don't always remember all of them. I would love to be able to have something going on that I could wake up and be like, let me watch what that was. A window into my conscious. So I could be like, ooh, that was a dragon. It wasn't a dog with, you know, elephant legs. Like here's the, here's oh. the gag. It's already been invented. What? Yeah. I think I sent you this, Laura, on TikTok. Someone had they have technology now. They can hook up to your thing. They said they did these tests and they said, look at this picture and then think of this picture in your mind. And the technology we have can take what's in your mind and put it on the screen. And it looks almost Yeah, it looked identical. a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. A little, I mean, it was a little weird, yeah. but it's it beta. was pretty- Very beta right now. Somebody stole my idea. Yeah, Damn you should definitely I mean, talk it, to somebody about that. Listen- but. Listen, it's not, but I'm just, I'm just telling you right now. It's a good idea. We don't even know what's coming. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. The aliens are coming to bring us more technology. They're all iPhone, my phone. Check this I out. I know. Yeah. Don't get me started about aliens because they're <laughs> here. I'm from New Mexico. I'm from New Mexico. Okay? Yes, of so, course. My, Amanda. My, did you see the movie Jules? Which movie? Did you see the movie Jules? No. There's a movie out. It's called Jules, and it's about an alien that lands in this guy's backyard. And at first, first I was like, oh, this is going to be stupid. It's like this old man and this alien. But it's really, really good. It's like four like actors and like the whole thing. And it's really – it's good. It's just – you got to see it. It's great writing. You would think that it's like – would be weird or whatever, but it's not. It's just so like down to earth. It's like dry. It's like dry, witty. Like I don't know how to explain the writing, but it's really good. All right, we're going to watch it it and then we'll review it on the podcast. And what about you? What would you invent? Probably a a sunshine machine. Oh. Like that I could just have sunshine. I know they have those boxes. Yeah. But like real sunshine. Like I could go, no, I could go outside and it's raining and be like, no. Yeah. It's going to be sunny today. That's a good one. I could control the weather. I really like that. I need the sun. Love that. Yeah, me too. I'm basically a lizard. Flowers, creates flowers. Yeah. A flower creator. Well, it's kind of like you just moved to Colorado and got that. Don't y'all get like the most sunny days of the year of like any place in the in the world? Or we something? get a lot. Even when it snows, we'll get our storms, and there'll be two feet of snow on the ground. But the sun does eventually. Yeah, we get a lot of sunlight here. This last winter was rough, though. I don't think we probably didn't hit the mark. It was like usually. So, like Jenny's right. It's it's usually we could wake up to like a couple of inches of snow or a lot, and then by the afternoon, like it's gone because the sun is out. And being six thousand feet closer to the sun actually makes a difference. Makes a big difference. And it's there's no humidity either, so it's just dry. So it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds nice. So I can add to my sunshine machine a no humidity. Yes. Okay. Well, now I'm completely on board. Like that (laughs) needs to come here right now. But both fantastic answers. And again, we just are so happy that y'all came on and everybody needs to go check out Soul Rising as well as Amanda's book, Trust Yourself to Be All In, Safe to Love and Let Go. And yeah, we're just thrilled that we we made it happen, guys. And we would love to have you guys back. Yeah, and when we get set up with our our guest interviews, we're 100% having you guys on. So, oh yay, we'd love that. What 
love what we could talk about. Oh, maybe we'll talk about aliens. Yes, exactly. Oh, we'll talk about all the juicy stuff. Yes. I'm down. I'm down. Yeah, we're already in. Well, we hope you guys have a- You guys are awesome. Yeah, you're awesome. Have a great afternoon and we'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Thank you guys. Bye. Okay, so what'd you think? Well, I am very, very encouraged by them because they are sort of on the same path that we're on, just trying to spread this message of doing the inner work and healing your inner child and looking at, you know, reasons why people are the way they are and how people deal with certain trauma in their life. And I really, really, really just dug their energy. I felt like I've known them forever. I mean, they just felt very, they're very relatable. Their story is uh, incredible. Their commitment to their sobriety and their, they're very, very lovely, lovely people. What did you think? I mean, I thought it was fantastic. I think that they generally, you know, like you said, I had goosebumps in the beginning. They're talking about you know, where their podcast came from and, and where, you know, what they hope to accomplish, because it's very on track with what, what we are trying to do. But I think they also bring another angle of, you know, the sobriety and the different kind of things that they've been through, not to mention Amanda's, you know, book is like, awesome. They have such a great, like you said, energy vibe. And I think that they really are like, challenging people to, not just like, you know, la da da, like everybody, be happier, get over your trauma. Not that that's what we're doing, but that they're challenging like a spiritual way too. And I think that that's something like I felt like we learned a lot. I mean, it was just learned so much. And there were a lot of mic drop moments for, for sure. sure. Yeah. And we even afterwards, you know, everybody else wasn't privy to our awesome conversation we had afterwards while we were uploading files. But, you know, even in that, I mean, it was just like nonstop, like, what? Tell me more about that. So it's just all around. I'm just so glad that they came on. I can't, you know, thank them enough for doing that. And gotta have them back. I mean, they're coming back. back. They're coming back. And, 100%. and their podcast is awesome. It's definitely like in, I won't say it's infancy, but I think they've only got about 10 episodes out right now, but they're definitely growing and going to have guests on and stuff. So go check out Soul Rising. It, it's really good. So I just, I, th- I can't wait to have them back. Honestly, that's all I can think about is the, the next chapter, the next page. <laughs> Exactly. I thought what they had to say about everything that we I mean, we heavily talked about grief in this episode. And I love what Amanda said about the change, the change, the little changes. That was the part that spoke the most to me that you don't recognize that the grief is in the change. It's in the constant change that the little things that are going on, like that person's no longer there to flip on the light switch, that person's no longer there to sit and have dinner with. Oh, now you have to everything. Well, it, well, it explains why like grief doesn't just happen from a death of somebody that it can happen from a death of an of a wish or an expectation or a marriage or of you know even your own identity like that change is what you're really grieving like you're grieving the loss of what you had before and that it's not always just a physical person that it can be you know the life that you had or what you thought that life was going to be like and I think that's important for people to realize that it doesn't you don't have to have physically lost a person to be grieving. Oh, 100%. You know, you could grieve the loss of a job. I definitely, as someone who's, you know, we both have gone through tremendous amounts of grief and hearing that, you know, the process is for them, I like the way that they look at grief. I like the way that they don't judge grief. 
you know, what was the part that she said? I love the um, self-abandonment. Self-abandonment. Like, yeah. That's exactly, and then yeah. just the how, like, understanding that you're worthy, you know, as a person, you know, overall is the ultimate, like, self-love at the end of the day is what it really comes down to. Because Jenny was emphasizing this, too, that you don't know which day, you know, that that you don't know how many days you have left with other people, but you also don't know how many days other people have left with you. And that that itself should inspire you or motivate you to treat yourself well and to love yourself and not be dependent on outside validation. And to uphold, uphold boundaries, holding boundaries. It's a common theme on this show. Well, you know, that was such an incredible episode, but let me ask you the question of the day, Laura. If you could invent anything in the world, what would it be? Thanks for saying it that way. You know, I came up with this question and I really didn't even take the time to think about it other than the no, the inspiration for it was that my daughter said the other day, my seven-year-old said, you know, it'd be really amazing is if we had teleportation, not just for the sake of teleportation, but so that when you're really tired, you can just teleport straight to your bed. So it's like a bed teleportation device. Your seven-year-old said this? Yes. And I was like, that is the best idea you have ever had in your whole entire life, your whole entire seven years on this earth. Like, I have never wanted to be directly somewhere so much that, you know, because any other scenario, you might not be dressed for the occasion. But like a teleportation device to bed, I mean, you're just like, you don't have to be wearing pajamas. It's just when you're ready to go to bed, you're ready to go to bed. So I I, am stealing her idea. That was very profound for a seven-year-old. My goodness. you know her. She's... This is not her first rodeo, I don't think. No, no. She's been here before, for sure. So what would you you invent? Okay. Do you remember Back to the Future 2? Yes. Okay. There is a a scene where they go to Marty's future house and they put a little tiny pizza that's this big into this like, I think they called it a hydrator. Oh, yeah. it It made the pizza expand in like three seconds and all you of a sudden it was tiny food that and becomes big. Yes, I want to make something that has makes tiny food big and delicious in five seconds. I think that's a great idea. You know, we're, we're, it sounds like we're maybe just a little impatient, but it's fine. <laughs> it's a convenience thing, but what yes, else would you be I, inventing? Listen, listen, we're all about convenience at this stage. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to self-abandon my needs. Okay, exactly. <laughs> we have to. We need the time to heal and look at within, not to be exactly. dealing with large pizzas that we have exactly. to get through the door. You know, exactly. They should be small, and then when you want them to be big, they get bigger. Yeah, the, the hydrator. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> as always, such a oh. fabulous, fabulous time seeing you. And what a what a what a kick ass podcast this was today. Yes, it was. I had so much fun. And love you dearly. And until next time. All right. Till next time. Bye. Bye. 